You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Happy Advent to you. Um, It is good to be looking at God's Word together. Well, this morning, I, I might... I'm thinking this way anyways, I might stretch some of you on how you read your Bible. I know it's kind of like an odd uh, entryway into talking about Advent, but I think that's going to be the case, maybe for some of you. There are times when we go through the Bible, and it's just, it comes off really straightforward, like, well, duh, you know, literally, and you're like, okay, I, I understand. Um, like, we went through the book of Ephesians, right? About, it's been about 28, 30 weeks or something in the book of Ephesians, just systematic. If when you read Ephesians, it's just one thought after another. Uh, the Apostle Paul, who wrote Ephesians and other books like Romans, he like thinks like a lawyer, and that's how he writes. And for some of you, that's really helpful, because you think that way. By the way, I don't. <laughs> um, you know, we went through a Suffering Servant and Suffering Saint series, talking about suffering. How does that connect to the suffering of Christ, right? That gets really personal, because we all have suffered. Uh, we have here today the Gospel of Matthew, which we've been looking at thus far during our Advent series. We have stories in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, later, if you continue to read Matthew, we run into parables, one parable after another, and you're just trying to figure out, what does he mean? <laughs> you know, it's not Paul. Jesus is using parables to make a point. Also with Matthew, which, which is interesting, he is constantly making connections between past stories and his present reality. And so we have to begin to think like Matthew to some degree to understand why he is interpreting the Bible the way he is. He's reaching backwards to understand his present reality. So if Paul's letters are like a legal briefing, then the Gospel of Matthew is like a painting. You have to see the entire canvas. You have to step back, see the entire canvas to understand what you're seeing. There are various colors, but when all the colors are seen together, yeah, it does actually make sense. So when you look at only one color in the canvas, you're left wondering, What am I looking at? In the mind of Matthew, our author, there is no way you could understand the birth of Jesus Christ apart from seeing how it was revealed in the Old Testament. There's no way the birth of Christ makes sense unless it's revealed in the Old Testament. No way. So you have to step back and see the entire picture. And a prayer I have for you this morning, I've had for you this morning, is that your trust in the Bible, in what you read, your trust in Holy Scripture will actually increase as you see how it all fits together. I want that for you this morning. Again, it feels like an odd statement to make during Advent, but if you really want to believe in the birth of Jesus Christ, we want our trust in Holy Scripture, which is talking about the birth of Christ, to increase. And I think your trust will increase as you see what was written hundreds of years before Christ find its fulfillment in Christ. 
So we must not read the Bible as individual stories that teach good morals for you to apply. You kind of take them out of context. You know, David and Goliath, you kind of take that out of context and find the moral principle. That's not how we're supposed to read Scripture. No, you read the Bible to understand how all these stories are connected to God's redemptive plan. Part of my job as a pastor, and I do this every single week, I try to, but I'm making it so explicit this morning, is to help you read your Bible. So that when you go to Holy Scripture, and you come to Matthew 2, and you see him quoting the Old Testament, your mind begins to put things together. And I want you to see how all these scriptures that we're going to be running into and bumping into today connect with and intersect at God's redemptive plan. So my goal this morning is simple. I want you to be amazed about how a bunch of Old Testament authors who didn't know each other were writing about the same event and the same person. The event being the birth, the person being the birth of Jesus Christ. A birth of a child born in Bethlehem who had to flee to Egypt but eventually settled in Nazareth. Like, how do we make sense of all that? Like, Sean Powers grew up in Dubuque. And he left and went to Twin Cities. And then he went to North Carolina. And now he's back in the Twin Cities. And now he's back in Iowa. Like, how does it all even make sense? Well, we've got to understand the backstory of it all. And Matthew's going to help us do that this morning. All these locations have historical and theological meaning. So during this Advent season, as you pray before your Christmas meal, as you gather around your Christmas tree or watch your favorite Christmas movie, may you be led to reflect on why this season is so unique and celebrated. So I'm going to pray for God's help. And we're going to look at what what truly is an amazing story in the Bible, several stories actually, several scenes, and how it all connects to the birth of Christ. So let's pray. I need God's help, and we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is good and it is instructive. Oh God, you are an amazing king, an almighty God, and you are worthy of glory. And so for these next few minutes, by the power of the Spirit, be at work in our lives and in our heart. Help us to see the beauty and the richness of what you have already spoken. Help us to apply your word to our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. So during Advent thus far, I've, I've said a lot about promises. I'm going to emphasize Old, Tem- Old Testament promises one more time. And next week, I'll shift gears a little bit by focusing on John 1. We have seen the importance of promises in the Bible. The promises might be prophetic in nature, or they might be statements that make sense kind of in retrospect. Before looking at a few more Old Testament promises, let us take one more look at history. Uh, We've looked at the promises of history. We have seen how uh, reliable and faithful God is compared to the promises made by sinful human beings. Perhaps it does go without saying, like, we actually live in a generation where promises are more and more meaningless, like keeping promises. The promises we make to one another have become very malleable. They, They change. The promise is made, but the promise maker shifts the commitment because of circumstances. It could be social pressure. It could be internal desire changes. For example, uh, here are several promises made by four different U.S. presidents. 
Uh, these promises were not kept because I'm an equal opportunity um, basher. I got two Democrats and two Republicans. Going back to 1916, Woodrow Wilson, he actually campaigned on this slogan. He kept us out of war, like that was the button. He kept us out of war. Only to enter World War I a year later, the Great War. Now, one could argue circumstances forced his hand to enter the Great War, right? We all look back in history and say, well, America really needed to enter that war in order for uh, the Allies to win the war, right? But the point remains, he made a promise and he didn't keep it. Richard Nixon, 1968, claimed to have a secret plan to end the war and promised to find a way of peace and honor in Vietnam in particular. But American troops were not withdrawn until 1973, a little more than a year before Nixon resigned. Now, how many people died in, that, in those five years where Nixon made a promise and actually he actually got out of that war? George W. Bush. Don't hate on me. He promised to change the tone in D.C., privatize Social Security, and reduce government spending, none in which he succeeded at, according to Axios.com. Perhaps politics got in the way or Bush changed his mind. I don't know. Regardless, between the time the promises were made and he took office, none of those promises were kept. Barack Obama, again, don't hate on me. PolitiFact tracked 533 of Obama's promises and found that 48% of them he managed to keep. 48%. Okay. While 24% of them he broke. So Obama kept almost half of his promises. Whether you like them or not is not the point. But he broke 24%. Now, I don't know if these stats are consistent with other presidents, but what I do know is if I broke a quarter of the promises that I made with Sharice, I think I would be in a whole lot of trouble. <laughs> now, the point is not who you voted for or what you think about these four presidents. The truth is, I could have started with George Washington, made, all, made my way all the way to Joe Biden, and made the same point with every single president in between those two, the first and the current. Consider all the broken promises you've experienced throughout your life. A friend, a friend says, that, says they will show up, and they kind of like back out at the last second. Marriage vows are made only to be broken years later. I mean, have you ever had a friend say, yeah, I'll help you move, then like on moving day they're mysteriously sick because <laughs> no one likes to help move? <laughs> What's my point? I'm not trying to cause you to distrust politicians or individuals. It would be best for you to discern what level of trust you'll extend toward your friends or leaders. As Christians, we certainly want to keep our promises, right? We want to do our level best to be people of integrity. But I mentioned the nature of promise-making and promise-breaking to show we serve a God who always keeps His promises. <laughs> That's the contrast. We serve a God who is faithful. I know I've already mentioned this, this promise-making and promise-keeping during the Advent season, but today we read of three more, three different promises made in the Old Testament that find their fulfillment in the birth of Jesus Christ and in the early life of Jesus Christ. In chapters 1 and 2 of the Gospel of John, five promises are fulfilled from the Old Testament. Some of the promises are straightforward, and like actually some of them, as we're going to see today, are kind of sneaky. It's like, where did that come from? I've got to explain that. 
with the sneaky promises, we don't see a connection until that other connecting point is actually revealed. We saw two promises in the last two weeks. Uh, one of the promises was from Isaiah, and Matthew 1.23 picks up that particular promise. The other one is from Micah, Micah 2, and Matthew 2.6 picks up that promise. In the second half of chapter 2 of Matthew, the author shows us the depth of his reading of the Old Testament. He really knows his Bible. He is going to, he's going to continue to quote from the prophet Hosea and Jeremiah. So he knows his stuff. So right out of the gate, here's what I want you to learn from Matthew, the author. He believes the Old Testament through and through is about Jesus Christ. That statement alone should inform your Bible reading. Right? The Old Testament through and through is about Jesus Christ. What about that one time God gave water out of a rock? It's about Jesus Christ. What about that whole manna from heaven thing? Yeah, it leads toward Jesus Christ. What about this whole creation of the day thing? It leads towards Jesus Christ. The Old Testament is about God's path of redemption for his people through Christ. The three fulfilled promises in today's passage continue to build out and confirm the providential work of God to save his people. We can trace the three promises with with kind of the, the travel going on in our story. The movement from one location to the next serves as a good outline. So if you're a note taker, here you go. We have in verses 13 and 15 this, this going to Egypt. And then we transition to another scene in living in Egypt, verses 16 to 18, and then verses 19 to 23, we got this language of out of Egypt, which we're going to have to talk about. In each scene, we see Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus. Now think about it. We have Joseph. He's providing and protecting his family all along the way. Now let's look at how the first promise found its fulfillment in Christ. Again, I'm hammering this home. I want this to inform how you read your Bible. For the third time in three weeks, we see an angel of the Lord appear to Joseph in a dream. And each time, the angel provides Joseph with specific instructions. Here's what the angel said this time. Rise, which is common for the angel to tell Joseph, rise or arise. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. You might remember from last week, we left off with the, with the wise men and they kind of got a feeling that Herod wasn't up to something good, and so they're like, peace, we're out. And so the story kind of picks up here, and Herod's not happy. You also might recall from last week that Joseph, Mary, and Jesus are still in Bethlehem. But the tyrannical King Herod is threatened by Jesus because the wise men are like, ha, we're here to serve a king, and Herod didn't like that idea because he was king. So he wants to kill Jesus. So the idea is for Joseph to move his family out of the jurisdiction of King Herod. We need to get Jesus away. You need to get his wife away from Herod. And once again, Joseph obeys the angel of the Lord. I don't want to understate the obedience factor here of Joseph. I think it's worth pausing just to keep this kind of in the back of our mind as we continue to look at this particular story. His obedience to the Lord were acts of provision and protection for his family, right? That's part of what's going on here. His devotion to the Lord is like, yes, the angel of the Lord appeared to me, and I'm going to do this because I want to obey 
my, my God, and I want to provide and protect for his, for his family, for Mary and for Jesus. I think there's a lot for us to learn from Joseph. Like, we don't know much about him, but we, can, we know enough from these particular scenes in Matthew and Luke that he was a father who cared. And he wanted to provide and protect his family through and through. So you can keep that kind of in the back of your mind as we move forward here. But the real question at the table, I think, for right now is, why Egypt? Like, why are we going to Egypt? Joseph had moved his family north. Couldn't go west to get the, what is the Mediterranean Sea. He could have gone east. But why go south? The reason for moving to Egypt, to go south, is actually profoundly historical and theological. What Matthew is indicating is actually massive. I'm going to spend a little more time on this point than the other two. But read with me in verse 15. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I have called my son. The sermon title is called Out of Egypt. If you want to understand the depth of Jesus moving to Egypt, you need to know the context of the prophet Hosea. So let's read from Hosea 11.1. When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. As Pastor uh, David Platt notes, the flight of Egypt, the flight to Egypt for Jesus and his family, was much more than simply running away from Herod. This was about painting a picture. What kind of picture? It's actually a picture of God's mercy. It was not unusual for, call, for God to call Israel, collectively, his child in the Old Testament. This is because God had a singular love for a collection of people. With the use of the singular child, we can quickly pivot to the New Testament and understand that a collective people would be redeemed through one child. It's an amazing theological shift. Not a change, but just perspective. This one child is actually going to redeem the collection of people. But there's more to the story. Matthew is referencing Hosea, and Hosea is referencing one of the most monumental events in history, the exodus of Israel from Egypt. So hang with me, because the connection between Jesus and the exodus is truly important. In Exodus 6, God promises to deliver Israel from slavery and out of Egypt. I mentioned this when I I referenced the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1, and we see the substance here. Here's what God spoke to Moses to tell the people of Israel. I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from from slavery. So you see what God is doing here? God is going to do the delivering. God is going to take them from slavery, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with a great axe of judgment. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I mean, I want you to see some connections here. Matthew, back to Hosea. Hosea is stretching back to the Exodus that we read about in the book of Exodus. So, of course, part of the process of delivering Israel from the oppression of the Egyptians was the ten plagues. We got the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, the crossing of the Red Sea. So what do the actions of God in the Exodus tell us about God? I've already said he's merciful, but there's more. First, we read God delivers and he redeems. God put down 
the Egyptians and delivered Israel from slavery, God also took back or redeemed what belongs to him, the people. The other takeaway from the Exodus story is that God was faithful to fulfill his promise. So as you start backwards and move forwards, you see how the promises are fulfilled and how God is faithful to fulfill promises. God said he was going to do something, and in his sovereign plan, he did something. His plan would not be thwarted. So the prophet Hosea picks up on the theme of God's sovereign plan to redeem. But here's the problem during the time of Hosea. Again, I'm pressing you guys to understand your, on your, your Bible, your Bible reading. Because context is always important. Now, what about Hosea? In the context of Hosea 11, Israel is constantly disobeying God. Constantly disobeying. They kept walking away from the one who led them out of Egypt. That's Hosea's problem. It's like, guys, do you remember? And now, let's look, at, let's look at it again, Hosea 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Verse 2 is so important to help us understand verse 1. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and the burning of offerings of, to idols. So not only were they like, oh, I'm a good Christian who keeps sinning, but it's like, no, I'm going to go worship another god. And Hosea's like, dude, don't you remember what God did for you? Come on. The entire chapter of Hosea 11 is about how God will redeem, though. He will redeem Israel, but Israel continues to rebel against God. Over and over, God provides, but over and over, Israel put its thumb in God's eye. Yet, the steadfast love of God is more consequential than their rebellion. And what do we, what do the people of God need more than anything? And they need a king. No, they don't need a king to rule over their land, right? They tried that. They had King Saul. They had King David. They had King Solomon. No, they need a king who will rule and reign over their heart. They need a king who will not just deliver them from physical slavery, but deliver them from the slavery that is caused by their sin. They need a different kind of king. They need the Son of God to provide a spiritual exodus. It's really important. We get so caught up in the tangible and the physical, we've got to settle the realities of God wants to spiritually do something as well. Therefore, the prophet Hosea was not only reflecting back on Exodus 6, but he was looking forward to a more excellent, lasting path of redemption. There's another angle for us to see why the angel called Joseph to go to Egypt. Egypt is symbolic that the redemption through faith in Jesus Christ is for the nations. A little-known bishop from the 5th century uh, named Cremanius helps make my point. You've probably never heard of him. If you had, gold star to you, because I had never heard of him until this last week. But he says this, and it's beautiful. After Egypt's ancient grave sin... After many blows had been divinely inflicted upon it, God, the omnipotent, omnipotent means all-powerful, all-powerful Father, moved by devotion, sent His Son into Egypt. He did so that Egypt, which had long ago paid back the penalty of wickedness owed under Moses, might now receive Christ 
the hope of salvation. How great was God's compassion as shown in the advent of his son. So, so Egypt represents a place of immense pain for Israel, right? Slavery. But man, hope for the nations as well. Going to Egypt is symbolic, but it also fulfills a central prophetic theme in Scripture. God is all about the redemption of his people. Jesus represents a new exodus because he is the true Israel. That statement alone is going to impact, if you believe it, it's going to impact how you read your Bible. Let me say it again. Jesus represents a new exodus because he is the true Israel. Before looking at the second fulfilled promise, I want to ask a few direct questions about what we've seen so far in verses, between verses 13 and 15. If God was willing to redeem his people by showering down plagues and parting the Red Sea, you know, the Exodus story, if God was willing to do that, if God was unwilling to give up on his people, even though they constantly rebelled and worshiped idols, Hosea 11, and if God was willing to set his son, his one and only son, into the world as the capstone of redemption, Matthew 1 and 2, if God has done all this, do you think it's worth pausing for a moment to thank God for his faithfulness? Thank God for his steadfast love. And thank God for Christ who made a way for us to have a personal exodus from the punishment and power of sin. I think it's worth taking the time to create space, especially during the Advent season, to remember what God has done for you. Dean had prayed this way for a moment earlier. Like, this is a busy time of year. I get that, right? You're busy, I'm busy. Pull out, pull out the calendar. And it's like, got another activity tonight. It's a great activity. Great activity. Man, I'm going at warp speed. You think it's worth in the midst of your busy schedule to pause and be like, you know what? I am going to pray. I'm going to reflect. And I'm going to thank God for what he has done. If creating space means going for a walk to remember and thank God, do it. If that's your thing, go. If creating space means jumping into the car or the truck and finding a country road to drive on, that's my thing. Just find a country road and uh, head west. Eventually, it'll, it'll end. It might be Nebraska, but it'll end. But just take that space to thank God. Creating space mean, might mean closing the door to avoid the, the chaos in the house, right? Creating space might mean pulling the blanket over your head. <laughs> and remember, though, thank God when you do that. Whatever it looks like for you, take time during the busyness of the holiday season to create space to be with God, to thank Him for what we see in Holy Scripture and what is truly a reality in our lives. And here's the crazy cool part of what we see in the phrase, out of Egypt. You, Christian, have been woven in to God's plan of redemption along with all those who were delivered out of Egypt. Like, you're a part of that plan. That's crazy. That's crazy awesome. All because of Christ. Now, here's the second of three scenes in our story. Joseph, Mary, and Jesus moved to Egypt, right? They get there. Uh, we don't know where in Egypt. We don't know anything about their time in Egypt, actually. Uh, scripture is silent on the matter. 
However, back in Bethlehem, Herod's fury was in full force. He murders all the male children under the age of two because he wants to kill Jesus. We know Lady Justice did not have her way with Herod. And unfortunately, we see the impact Herod had on the community, Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a small town. And scholars suggest up to or around 20 to 30 children would have been murdered at the hand of Herod. Regardless of the size of the town and the number of children murdered, the, the, the pain for parents would have been palpable. Any parent would be heartbroken. Holy Scripture makes this part of the story known. You got me? Quoting Jeremiah 31.15, we read, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Like Hosea, there is an original context for this passage. However, the context is not the exodus from Egypt, but the exile of Israel to Babylon. So we're kind of fast-forwarding a little bit in biblical history, going from the exodus to the exile. That's the reference to Ramah is all about. The exile is when the Israelites were taken from their land by the Babylonians. One of the features of the exile is that families were separated, oftentimes separated from one another. So Jeremiah 31, which is quoted by Matthew, depicts the lament of mothers in Israel as their sons were were taken away by the Babylonians to go to Babylon. There would have been a similar emotion for the mothers in Bethlehem. You know, there's like, a, there's like a couple of rules in life, right? Um, you're going to die. There's going to be taxes. And you don't mess with a mother's child. And that's what was going on. But what makes this reference even more curious and interesting is actually the reference to Rachel as well. There's this mashup of, of the exile and this matriarch, as it were, Rachel. Rachel, the wife of Jacob. If you go back and read Genesis 29, Rachel is married to Jacob but can't have children. She is barren. Uh, the women around her are having children, but Rachel can't have any children. But one day, God gave a child to Rachel, first one being Joseph. Think of the great stories about Joseph in, at the end of Genesis. And then she has one more child, but she dies at birth. And that's what's being referenced here. She has Benjamin. And then she dies. But here's the deal. Here's one of the points Matthew is making in verse 18. Life comes from death. Israel would eventually return from exile to be given new life. From Rachel came a son who stands in the genealogy of Jesus. In all this pain, we see how, we see how tears and disappointment reveal God's ultimate purpose for our good. It's also worth mentioning that the people of God have constantly been persecuted. Yes, we see that. see that with slavery in Egypt and the exile and now here in Bethlehem. Yes, there were times where Israel caused their own pain, but throughout history, God's people have been the recipients of unjust persecution. But what we need to remember from this passage, of what happened in Bethlehem, God ultimately brings justice and hope in and through the redemption through Jesus Christ. As Professor 
uh, Doriani says, the first Christmas was the beginning of the end of evil on earth. For so many years, the world had so little of God's light. The coming of Christ was the dawning of a great light in a world filled with darkness. So, verses 16 to 18 show us, first, Rachel was barren, but God did provide. Rachel did die, but a mighty legacy lived through her son, Benjamin. Second, the Babylonians sent Israel into exile, but God still made a way for them to get back. And finally, Herod slaughtered innocent children. We can't get around that. We're not going to we're not going to pretend that didn't happen. It did happen. But God's plan of redemption is still going to work. The evil intentions of wicked men cannot stop the plan of God. Now, on to the final scene of our story. The third way the birth of Jesus fulfills a promise. This is between verses 19 and 23. We do read in verse 19 that Herod dies, which is a signal for Joseph to take his family back to Israel. And before the time of email, text messaging, and smartphones, Joseph would have no idea Herod died, right? Like, we don't even got like the donkey with the letter carrier or whatever. That's not even in play. So, Q, who? The angel of the Lord. All right. For the fourth time in chapters 1 and 2, the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph. And Joseph was not entirely settled on the new ruler. The new ruler over Israel was the son of Herod. Joseph knew something about him, and it was this. He was even more wicked than Herod. So Joseph has another dream, which is no shocker, and Joseph goes to the backwater town called Nazareth. Now, we know from Micah 5.2 that the town of Bethlehem is significant. It's very significant. We know from Hosea 11.1 that the land of Egypt is noteworthy. Both locations along with the star help us to identify Jesus as the Son of God. But what about Nazareth? Let's read verse 23. And he went and lived in the city. And that's a very generous word, city. It's actually a small town. The city was just kind of used for every little town and village. A city called Nazareth. So that what was spoken by the prophets, plural, might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, okay, I see a pattern. I see a pattern, Pastor Sean. We've got this whole thing going on where something's being fulfilled in the New Testament. We can trace it back to the Old Testament, right? 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 Yeah, wrong, actually. For this one, we gotta, we're doing something a little different. However, we, this is kind of a problem that we need to solve. Nazareth is not mentioned in the Old Testament. It's not even mentioned in um, extra-biblical extra Jewish literature, rabbinic literature. So what's going on? In verse 23, Jesus says, the prophets, this has been fulfilled, right? What was spoken by the prophets. So I'm going to give you my best understanding of why Nazareth is mentioned. There are actually several ideas. I'm just going to give you one. To know what Matthew is getting at, we have to know the reputation of Nazareth because it was an actual city. We've got to know the, the reputation of Nazareth in the first century. We're given an indication of the reputation of Nazareth in the Gospel of John. At the end of chapter 1 of the Gospel of John, Jesus is gathering, you know, he's beginning to gather his disciples, and there's two of them in particular in this part of the story. It's Philip and Nathaniel. When Nathaniel is urged to follow Jesus of Nazareth, he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like, 
hey, we, we met the Son of God. Oh, great, he's from Jerusalem, right? No. Uh, Bethlehem? Well, kind, yeah, kind of, but not really. But he's actually been growing up and living in Nazareth. What? Nazareth. What comes out of Nazareth? The reputation of Nazareth was not good amongst outsiders. You don't live in Nazareth. You don't go vacation in Nazareth. You certainly don't send your kids to university in Nazareth. Here's a kind of a funny story that connects with people's perception about places. After we had moved to Minnesota, so after I had moved from Iowa to Minnesota, I heard every joke about Iowa that one could think of. <laughs> I was actually kind of astonished. I didn't realize Iowa had such like a negative reputation amongst Minnesotans. Yeah, you're shaking your head like, hey, I've never thought of that. Right? Here are a few jokes. What's the only good thing that comes out of Iowa? Interstate 35. I was told that one, yeah. Here's another one. Iowa, the only state where you can watch a dog run away for three days. <laughs> that might be a little truth in there. <laughs> there was this guy at our church. I loved him. We always sat behind him. But I'm fairly certain um, before they drove to church every Sunday, he would pull another Iowa joke from, from the website, from some website, and he would uh, let me know, you know. He, it's interesting because these jokes are funny, but it was a kind of also a perception that some people thought Iowa was kind of like the backwoods. Well, the reputation of Nazareth would have been worse. And there's no way people thought that the Son of God would come from the town of Nazareth. Well, maybe the Son of God coming from a no-name town is the point God is making through the prophets. Jesus comes from the backwoods to save people from the backwoods. <laughs> Jesus comes from a lowly place to save some who are in that low place. Jesus did not come to save the righteous, but sinners, Luke 5, 23. Perhaps Matthew had Isaiah 53, 3 on the mind. Jesus was despised and rejected by men, a man full of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Jesus came from the place where men hid their faces. The Messianic Psalm, Psalm 22, says this. And if you read all of Psalm 22, it's all about Jesus. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by, all, by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. Taken together, we get a sense that the Savior of the world was not going to be from the great city of Jerusalem. He wasn't going to be from, in the sense what we're talking about right now, raised up in the royal city of Bethlehem. That's what you would have expected. You would have expected Jesus of Bethlehem, Jesus of Jerusalem. But no, we have Jesus of Nazareth, the place you least expect. So Bethlehem, Egypt, and Nazareth, all of them are important. Each play a role in telling us the significance of Jesus. But Egypt ends up being the theological door that opens up and swings toward Bethlehem and then swings toward Nazareth. All the travel in which Joseph led his family is so you, Christian, could be redeemed by the Son of God. So how can you apply today's sermon? 
here's a couple thoughts before I end. First, you can have this, like, this faith-infused confidence that what is written in Scripture is an accurate historical description of what God has done. Second, if you are a Christian, you can be at peace, especially during this Advent season, knowing that God condescended to earth to be Emmanuel and to redeem you to himself for your good and for his glory. And finally, if there are three words I want you to remember from today, it is out of Egypt. Out of Egypt. These words from the Old Testament and repeated in Matthew tell us the Son came out of Egypt to redeem a people from slavery and set them free. If you are a Christian, hear me this morning. God has set you free from the slavery caused by your sin. He has set you free from the punishment you deserve because of your sin and the power in which sin has over a person. If you are not a Christian, you are still in that power of sin and deserve punishment. And the only way out of that is through the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.